0: As we come now before God's word, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. That's Hebrews chapter 8. And before we read here, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know that as we come before your word, we come before truth. And this is truth that often we cannot see on our own. Lord, help us to see. Cause us to believe these things, and would you produce hope as we see Christ enthroned in heaven. We ask your guidance now by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to read here these first five verses of chapter 8. So this is Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This is God's word. Now, We know here that the author has taken us into an extensive discussion of Jesus as our great high priest. He is very thorough on this subject. In fact, it will take him six chapters to cover all of what this means. And even though that's a lot of time spent, we are thankful that the author spends so much time working through this particular thing. Because the fact that Jesus is our high priest brings the Christian a great amount of hope, a great amount of comfort, brings us confidence, even brings us salvation. But, even with that, even though we know it's valuable, we know that thinking through Christ's priesthood is not easy. This will call us to think, Even think a little hard, and it can be draining sometimes to do this. It feels like it's a a bit of work to understand these things. We have just come through in the previous section of text what I think is the densest or the trickiest part of this whole discussion. You remember back in chapter 7, Jesus is discussed there as being part of a new order or a new line of priests after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus then is a priest forever, so he always lives to make intercession. And the author knows that that whole discussion was was tough to think about. He says at the beginning of it, he says, this is hard to explain. And we look at it and we go, yes, it is. Uh, he, He says it will require from us maturity, and discernment to understand it. And in case some of that whole discussion has gone over our heads in chapter 7, now in chapter 8, he gives us a nice, tidy summary. Whew, that helps me. I'm glad for it. Look at the summary at the very beginning. Now the point, here's the, here's the summary. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So the issue for us this morning is what does it mean for us that Christ our high priest is particularly in heaven, or in other words, in the holy places, in the true tent? What does it mean that Christ our high priest is in heaven? And in these set of verses here, the author is highlighting the connection and contrast between a heavenly priesthood and an earthly priesthood. At the end of this section, maybe you noticed that he quotes from the book of Exodus, where he is continuing to give details about uh, this the earthly tent. If you turn there, if you're quick, uh, to Exodus in chapter 25, let me read just a few verses from it. So he's talking about how this uh, tent or tabernacle is to be set up, the sanctuary. Exodus 25, beginning in verse 8, the Lord says this to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. So in the verses after that, he continues to give us details about that pattern, so details about how the Ark of the Covenant would go, how the furniture in the tabernacle would go, the the altar, the courtyard, all of it. So the Lord here is giving Moses a pattern of these things, and you'll notice that the Lord is not just giving a verbal explanation of a pattern. He says, exactly as I show you the pattern." He is visually showing Moses a pattern that this earthly tent is to be mapped after. Moses is not just looking at a drawing here. This is not just a blueprint or maybe a scale model. You know, a computer click and kind of rotate it so you can see all the sides. Moses is looking into the heavens at the real thing. The heavenly tent that is to be replicated on earth as the earthly dwelling and the meeting place of God with man. So now, the author of Hebrews is talking about that heavenly pattern. He's talking about the relationship between the heavenly and the earthly. The key to it, to that relationship, is in verse 5. We're now back in Hebrews. Verse 5 says this, they, this is the earthly things, the the priests and the tent on earth, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. They serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So this morning, as we unpack that, I want to give us three ways we could air or misunderstand the relationship between the heaven and the earth, how that those errors might cause us harm or lead us into sin. And then I want to give us one way to rightly understand the relationship between the heavenly and the earthly and how that will be a great help to us. Before I even begin, a warning. Ooh. A little caveat here. Parts of this will get a little philosophical. Oh, good, right? We don't often do this here, but we have to get a little bit philosophical, but I think we can handle it. I know it doesn't help us that you're looking at a very, very sleepy preacher who has a a week-and-a-half-year-old, or a a week-and-a-half... Uh, uh, um, old baby uh, see I can't even make a sentence good luck to us uh, in working through this but, uh, but we're going to try it will be a testament to the grace and power of God that we do this uh, with a little help of coffee so uh, so turn on your brain uh, we can do this together we're going to ask and trust that the spirit will help us in working through these three errors and then one proper way so here we go the first error in thinking through the relationship between the heavenly and the earthly, these are printed in your bulletin, by the way, with blanks if you're a note taker. The first error is that the earthly is not reality. That the earthly is not reality. If we were to do this very concisely with an H for the heavenly and the E for the earthly, you just cross out the E. The earthly is not reality. In other words, that our experience is just an illusion. That's an error. Many people over the centuries have noticed that the language that the author of Hebrews is using here when he talks about copies and shadows, that language is very similar to the language that was used by the philosopher Plato 300 years before but they don't quite mean the same thing. So Plato, in his uh, book The Republic, in book number seven, uh, talks about what has come to be known as the allegory of the cave. Perhaps you've heard of it. It goes something like this. This is a rough go. I'm going to miss a lot of parts. But Plato's allegory of the cave works something like this. He says humans uh, live in an underground cave. Not literally, this is his image. We live in an underground cave and we're all facing opposite from the opening. So if we were in that cave, the opening would be the balcony there. So we're facing the back wall of the cave. And Plato says that we are chained like this. We cannot move and we cannot even turn our head around. All we can see is the back wall opposite the opening. Outside of the cave, outside of the opening, are the real things that he sometimes calls the forms. Those real things keep passing in front of the opening, talking, doing various things, and so what we experience are the shadows and the echoes that bounce off the wall. So, in other words, our experience, we think is real, because that's all we know, but it's really just an illusion, just copies of the real, according to Plato. The way to access the real, by the way, he says, the way to escape the cave and to get out into where the forms are is through intellect and through some sort of special knowledge which will lead us out. That's Plato's approach. A slightly more modern depiction of this, although I realized as I pieced this out, this is 20 years old, but at least it's not uh, 2,000 years old. The movie The Matrix... Anyone seen that? It's 20 years old. Can you believe that? Uh, In The Matrix, if you don't know anything about the movie, that's all right. Neo, uh, the main character, Keanu Reeves, is uh, is met by this man, Morpheus, who's very cool and has cool sunglasses. But he's offered a choice uh, between taking the red pill or the blue pill. If he takes the blue pill, you'll just go back to normal and you'll never know or think a different thing. But he takes the red pill. And when he does, Neo is brought out into the real world and realizes that everything he has ever known is actually just an illusion. He's lived in a computer program created by machines his whole life. Now, if that sounds a little sci-fi, it is. But if these ideas sound silly to you, sound totally out there, and you go, there's no one who would believe these sorts of things, that isn't true. Versions of this idea that the earth is not reality are present in both Buddhism and Hinduism. That's more than 20% of the world's population believes that the earth, at least as we experience it, is not reality. This is not what the author of Hebrews is telling us. This is not what he means when he says that the earthly things are shadows. The Bible affirms that the physical world, even as we experience it, is very real. We know God is spirit, but he created a material world, and he called that material world good He made body and flesh, and as he gave it, he called it good. When Paul talks about flesh in the New Testament negatively, he means uh, our sin nature there, but he does not mean that the body itself is bad. Jesus took on a fleshly, earthly body. And even after he died and resurrected and now ascended, and he is seated now at the right hand of the Father in heaven, there he is in the flesh. Jesus is in the flesh, in his resurrection, physical, touchable body. We believe and affirm this. In fact, we often do it specifically in the Apostles' Creed. You know those last few lines? I believe in the resurrection of not just the soul although also that, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, that forever after, a Christian, the eternal state of believers who are in Christ, are in the new heavens and new earth in a very physical world. Then, it is a serious error to think that our earthly experience is not reality. And if we think that error, we run the risk of becoming detached from life or of perpetually trying to escape it. There's the first error, that the earthly is not reality. Now the second error is the opposite situation. The second error is that the earthly is the only reality. That the earthly is the only reality. So if we had H for heaven and E for earth, we would cross out this time the H. That the earth is all this is. And, and this is the view taken by, by that old Beatles song. Boy, my illustrations are very current. I'm very with it, you know. Uh, you know that old Beatles song? I'm sure you all recognize it. Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. That's not what the author of Hebrews tells us, but I will say we've got to give John Lennon at least a little bit of credit. He did get one thing wrong in this verse, or one thing, one thing right. He did get one thing right. It is easy to imagine if you try. It is easy to imagine a life like this where the earthly experience we have is all there is. It's so easy that more and more and more people are believing that these days. The thing, people that think that all this talk about God and the heavenly and the holy places and spiritual things, all of that's not really reality, that's just part of a lot of religious mumbo-jumbo, part of the imagination that just gives us hope so that we can string along our lives until we die. And if we are not careful, it is easy to get sucked into that idea. There's a scene uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, the book The Silver Chair, that's about this. So uh, the, the main character, Rillian, uh, who's, who's one of the princes of Narnia and he's got some travels with him, he gets trapped uh, underground by the queen of the underland. And they've got this big interaction with her between Prince Rilian and the queen of the underland and, and, and pr- the prince and the people with him, they insist that there is a real world up above the underland. They insist that there is a light which is called the sun that's like a lamp, but It's bigger. They insist that there is a lion called Aslan, and, and it's like a cat, but it's bigger. And the queen, in response to these things, she puts a little powder in the fire, which gives a nice drowsy incense, and she pulls out a little mandolin and begins to strum it. And she says, "Your idea of the sun is a dream." Those things are just copied out of this reality. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is just a children's story. And she begins to repeat, there was never any world but this one. There was never any world but this one. There was never any world but this one. And eventually, the prince and the ones with him begin to believe her. It is easy to get taken into this. And if we get taken into this idea that the earthly is the only reality, we will lose track of our hope in God. We know that the, the earth is real, but it's not the only reality The reality of these earthly shadows are supposed to lean forward into something bigger. The author of Hebrews will say it like this later in chapter 10, verse 1. He says, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, he goes on and makes an argument, but you hear the law is a shadow of the good things to come. The earth is real, just like a lamp is real, but the things of heaven are also real, just as the sun is real. And those real things are coming. There's our second error, that the earth is the only reality. Third and final error about the relationship between the heavenly and the earthly. The error is this, that the earthly is the greater reality that the earthly is the greater reality. So if we had our H and our E for heaven and earth, the H would be a lowercase h, and the E would be a nice big capital E. This view is closer, but it gets things turned around backward. So we might think about this view like this. Do you remember, I don't even know if these still exist anymore, the patterns for making clothes that they sell Uh, at, like, Walmart and other places. I remember as a kid these little packages and having no idea what they were, but there's vintage pictures of dresses and things. So if we think about that as the pattern of heaven, that it's some sort of sewing envelope, and, and, and if you take everything out of the package, what's in there is a bunch of shapes... And if you cut your fabric just right and you sew it together in just such a way, at the end, if you're skilled, you get a dress or something that you can wear. If we think about it this way, in this situation, the dress is more real or is greater than the pattern it was made from. So in a similar way, we might think that the earthly is more real Than the heavenly pattern it was made from This is a serious error And it's probably the biggest threat to the Christian because we as Christians, we know and believe that the heavenly and the earthly are both real. But the earthly feels like the dress. You know, we can touch it, we can feel it, we can wear it, it's pretty to look at. You know, and the heavenly feels sometimes like this closed envelope sealed off that maybe has some shapes inside and it's tough to piece it together and somehow the instructions are confusing and it's really complex and I don't really know how to sew anyway. The heavenly then begins to feel less real. It starts to feel like a fuzzy, Concept maybe it's it's some place we go after we die and perhaps there's you know gold or clouds or angels or, or or something but I know Jesus is there and that's good. We feel we know in our heads that the heaven is supposed to be bright as the sun but too often the heavenly feels like the shadow. This is an understandable feeling but it's also an error to be guarded against. Because if we allow the error of seeing the earth as the greater reality, if we allow that error to take root in us, we will run the risk of turning our joys into judgments. Here's what I mean by turning joys into judgments. Paul talks about this. In uh, Colossians chapter two, just a few verses here. Listen closely. Colossians chapter two. Paul says this in verse sixteen. Therefore, he writes. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are the sh- are a shadow. Of the things to come But the substance belongs to Christ Let me translate what he's just said here He's given us a list of a number of earthly shadows Food laws, holidays, celebrations, types of worship And we're called to obey these But, he says, these were designed To guide us to the heavenly pattern that they were cut from They're designed to to draw us to Christ himself who is the substance. And when we use them that way, when they're used to guide us upward to the heavenly, to Jesus, they bring us Mm -hmm. joy. We come to desire them as windows that help us to see God. But if we allow these earthly things to grow too big, to, uh, to stand on their own, to start to eclipse the heavenly things, instead of being a source of joy, they will become occasions for judgments where we can see if others have done them. They get turned into checkboxes. So, did I or did you, did you eat something you shouldn't? Yes? No. Did you bring your offering to God? Yes? No. Did you work on the Sabbath? Yes. No. Did you obey the law? Yes. No. And if the, if the checkbox is no, then of course we've got a situation in which we can judge the other when they don't tick the boxes. We need to recognize when this error of flipping the earthly and the heavenly creeps into our hearts Because it looks sad when you see it. Have you ever had worship that felt mechanical? Have you ever experienced prayer that felt like obligation? Have you ever felt like your love for God or for your neighbor was lifeless or empty? If that's the case, there is a good chance that the earthly is being eclipsed, or is eclipsing the sun. And we need to ask the Lord's help to set the heavenly back in its place. So how do we do that? What is the right place? What is the right way then to understand the relationship between the earthly and the heavenly? Here we are, last last stretch here. The proper way to understand, according to the author of Hebrews here, the relationship between the earthly and the heavenly is that the earthly is the lesser reality. The earthly is the lesser reality. There's a lowercase e and a capital H capital heavenly, lowercase earthly. The earthly is very real, but they are lesser shadows and copies. We want the earthly to do what it is meant to do, which is draw us nearer to the heavenly pattern. When I was a kid, I used to like uh, puzzles. I still like puzzles. Pull out the card table style puzzles, you know especially the the 3D puzzles. Anyone else familiar with these? You know, the ones that are kind of foam. And at the beginning, usually there's a base made. You put out all the pieces just like a regular puzzle, uh, and you establish a base, but then it builds up. It's a 3D puzzle, just like it's called. And they're usually made in these famous things, you know, Taj Mahal, there's the the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Eiffel Tower, things like that. Now, Imagine that there is a child who plays with regularly and puts together a 3D puzzle of the St. Louis Arch. And that child has no idea that his puzzle is a shadow or a copy of a real thing. But then one day, his family piles in the car and takes a drive, And in the distance, you can see the little loop in the sky. What is that? And we get closer? I, I recognize that. I've seen that before. You know, they, they get up close, the family parks, and they pile out of the car, and they make the walk, and we can go up to it. In fact, we can go in it. And they go down underground, and they get in the little uh, the little pod or whatever it is that takes you up, and you hear the chug, 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 and he feels kind of excited but a little nervous, maybe a little claustrophobic to be inside, but they get to the top, and, and he walks out, and there are little windows. And when he works up the courage, he goes up to the windows and presses his face on the glass to look out. He can see the whole city. And on one side is the mighty Mississippi River, but it just looks like a tiny stream. On the other side is the Cardinal Stadium, but it, it just looks like a cereal bowl. And he can see the little people like ants all walking around. And he stays up there as long as he can till the family draws him back. We need to go back home. So they go down the pot, and when he comes back out, he puts his hands on the outside of the arch and feels the cold steel, and he looks up at the height of it, and it's just dizzying to stare at it all. And when they get in the car and drive away, he can watch it getting smaller in the distance. That child has seen the pattern from which his puzzle was made. And you better believe that the next time he pulls out that 3D puzzle, his experience of it will be wildly different. Because as he puts it together, he will feel, he will remember, he will he will taste the greater reality of this lesser copy. He will feel then the greater delights having seen the pattern from which it was made. The world that we live in now is the Shadowlands. It is the Shadowlands which means we can neither just degrade it or dismiss it as only an illusion, but we can also not elevate it as the ultimate thing. Because it's not ultimate. It should be no surprise to us then that this world as it is now, as we live in it, is not enough for us. Because this is never how it was made to be. These shadows were not by themselves meant to satisfy us on their own. The shadows of the priests could not satisfy on their own. The shadows of the offerings of worship could not satisfy on their own. The shadows of the law could not satisfy on its own. The shadows of the tent of earth could not satisfy on its own. But when we trace these shadows back to their heavenly patterns from which they were cut, when we trace them back to Jesus himself, we will find a greater reality and there we will find greater hope and delight. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving us even a taste, even a sampler of the realest of the real. Help us to hold on to these things as true, that we would take care while in the shadows, but we would also look beyond them to their great reality in Jesus. We trust you, and we hope in you. In Jesus' name, amen.